Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 85, The End of One War, The Beginning of Another. Last episode, we recounted the time before the end of World War II and how Stalin was planning a whole new set of purges to extinguish the flames of nationalism. The vice on Nazi Germany is now tightening as the year of 1944 winds down. Hitler is hunkering down in Berlin, and the Wehrmacht is falling apart. The SS, though, is still dangerous, and they were given orders from Hitler himself to shoot or hang any German soldier who tries to retreat or surrender to the enemy, whether they be American, British, or aghast Russian. The Soviet Red Army was by now pushing into Poland and Czechoslovakia, getting closer and closer to Germany and their main target, Berlin. Many of the soldiers were acting like mad dogs, raping women and girls, shooting men, soldiers and civilians alike. In 1945, while fleeing the Russians, my own mother was grabbed by a Red Army soldier and was about to be assaulted when an American GI, an African American, put a gun to the Soviet soldier's head and told him to let my mother go. She was so grateful to the man, she vowed one day to immigrate to the United States. She did with my father and brother eight years later. The Red Army superiors knew about the brutal assaults, but did nothing to stop it, as they viewed it as retribution for atrocities committed by the Germans when they were on Russian soil. Stalin even laughed about the reports, telling his subordinates that the soldiers were just letting off a little steam and that it was payback and well-deserved. Because of it, anyone who could escape toward the West did. Soldiers were specially targeted and knew it was far better to be captured by the Americans or British than the Soviets. At the end of 1944, Charles de Gaulle of France made a visit to Moscow. At a dinner banquet, Stalin decided to try a little Russian humor on the uh, new French prime minister. Proposing a toast to Kaganovich, he said, quote, A brave man. He knows that if the trains do not arrive on time, we shall shoot him. His toast to Air Marshal Novikov was even more bizarre. A good marshal. Let's drink to him. And if he doesn't do his job properly, we shall hang him. He ended by saying, People call me a monster, but as you see, I make a joke of it. Maybe I'm not so horrible after all. De Gaulle, for his part, was likely aghast at the comments. He said to a Frenchman he was traveling with, And these are the people we will be dealing with for the next hundred years. De Gaulle knew after meeting Stalin that he was indeed a monster. The next Big Three conference was set to discuss what to do after the inevitable end of the war with Germany. The conference held in Yalta started on February 4, 1945, and ended the next week on February 11th. Its outcome would split the world for the next 47 years until the end of the USSR itself. Roosevelt, who was now only months away from dying, Churchill, only a few months away from being ousted as prime minister in the election, 
and Stalin were to discuss what to do with Europe after the war. Churchill, for his part, knew he was dealing with the devil. Roosevelt showed naivete in his assessment, believing that Stalin wouldn't do anything to harm the improved relationship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. He said in 1943, quote, I just have a hunch that Stalin is not that kind of a man. And I think if I give him everything I possibly can and ask for nothing from him in return, noblesse oblige, he won't try to annex anything and will work with me for a world of democracy and peace. Boy, did Roosevelt ever get that one wrong. Stalin felt he had all the power as his troops were less than 50 miles from Berlin and moving in rapidly. He would dictate the terms of the end of the war. He would install his form of Bolshevism into every country he possibly could. Stalin's justification was that he needed a buffer between his country and the rest of Europe, especially Germany, to prevent his country from being attacked and ravaged again. Roosevelt, for his part, needed help from the Russians, as the war with Japan was far from over, and it was likely that an invasion of the Japanese mainland was inevitable. Knowing that, Stalin could make his demands for a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and get what he wanted. Churchill, for his part, wanted free elections, but had little in the way of leverage. Roosevelt agreed to Stalin's terms, which many historians view as a sellout. Now, here are the key agreements that were reached at Yalta. First, that only an unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany was acceptable. Germany and Berlin itself would be split into four occupied zones controlled by the British, the Americans, the French, and the Soviets. Stalin agreed that France might be given a fourth occupation zone in Germany and Austria, but it would come out of the American and British zones and not the Soviet sector. Germany would undergo thorough demilitarization and denazification. Forced German labor was to be used to repair damage Germany inflicted on its victims. Creation of a reparation council in the Soviet Union would be created. The communist provisional government of the Republic of Poland will be installed by the Soviet Union on a broader democratic basis. Sure. The Polish eastern border would be the Curzon Line. Poland's expansion would come from German territories. Stalin pledged to allow free elections in Poland, which he knew he would never let happen. One particularly horrible concession to Stalin was that the citizens of the Soviet Union and of Yugoslavia, anywhere in Europe or Africa, Asia, wherever they may be, were to be handed over to their respective countries regardless of their consent. Many would die or be sent to the Gulag slave camps. Roosevelt obtained a commitment by Stalin to participate in the United Nations. Stalin requested that all 16 Soviet Socialist Republics would be granted UN membership. This was taken into consideration, but 14 republics were denied. Stalin then agreed to enter the fight against the Empire of Japan within 90 days after the defeat of Germany. Nazi war criminals were to be hunted down and brought to justice. And finally, all the countries in Europe would be allowed to, quote, to create, 
democratic institutions of their own choice. This is the principle of the Atlantic Charter, the right of all peoples to choose the form of government under which they will live. Stalin, for his part, must have been laughing under his breath, because he would never allow democracy to happen in his sphere of influence. Churchill began to fall under the influence of Stalin, as did Roosevelt. Churchill was quoted as saying, Poor Neville Chamberlain believed that he could trust Hitler. He was wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong about Stalin. Sorry, Winston. You were just as, if not more gullible, than Chamberlain. Stalin played both world leaders like a fiddle. He conned them like a master con man. When Molotov questioned Stalin about the wording in the Yalta Agreement, the boss said, eh, never mind. We'll do it our own way later. After Yalta, Stalin was assured in his position as the preeminent power broker and he, that he had succeeded in his plans to spread Bolshevism. He had the war he wanted and had the countries he wanted to come under his influence. Now he could plan his next step to have Bolshevism take over the entire world. By now the Soviet army was in Berlin and they were sodomizing and murdering their way through the German population. The Battle of Berlin will be a podcast series in its own right in the future, so I'll bypass it here. By April 30, 1945, Hitler was dead and Marshal Zhukov was mopping up the remaining Nazi soldiers. The war would go on for a few more weeks, but now the maneuvering would start. With World War II coming to a close, Stalin planned the next act, the next war, the Cold War. But first, we have to review the enormity of the loss of life. In Russia alone, the loss was staggering. Eight and a half million soldiers died in the fighting. But the more unimaginable figure is that 18 million civilians died as a result of the war. Some have claimed that the number is closer to 30 million total. Now you contrast that to the American losses of soldiers were in the 200,000 range, and it was still a brutal war for us. But you know, to Stalin, it was all collateral damage to achieve his goals of world domination. Then the Allies committed, in my opinion, war crimes to appease the beast of the East. They turned over to Stalin and his NKVD pigs, former White Army soldiers and officers, despite their long time spent in the West. Cossack General Sultan Giri, General Kuchak Ulagai, General Shukuro, a recipient of the British Order of the Bath for his fight against the Bolsheviks, all were turned over by the British to the boss, and later for execution. My mother would have been one of those, if not for the bravery of the Schaus family, protecting her in Germany, and my father marrying her in June of 1945 to avoid her deportation and certain execution. For this, my parents never forgave the British. Cossacks who fled Russia for Austria then fled to the Alps, but were rounded up by British soldiers and sent to die in Russia. Numerous deportations of enemies of Stalin were done in the name of appeasement and cooperation. 
a stain on both America and Britain that history books would like you to forget. It is one that I never will forget. The next conference that Stalin was to dominate was Potsdam, held from July 16th through August 2nd of 1945. Attending were Stalin, Winston Churchill for a short time, and then the new Prime Minister of the UK, Clement Attlee, and the new President of the United States, Harry S. Truman. While many think that Truman was a naive and backward person who didn't stand a chance against the battle-hardened Stalin, he was far more suspicious of the boss than his predecessor Roosevelt has. By now, Stalin was dominating the Baltic states, as well as much of Eastern and Central Europe, installing puppet governments throughout. While the war with Japan was ongoing, victory was, in, was within reach, but the possibility of a costly invasion was still there. Stalin was sure that he had a huge bargaining chip and was ready to use it. He felt that the Americans wouldn't have the ability to win the war without his support. But there was something we thought he didn't know about, and that was the atomic bomb that the Americans were about to test in the desert near Alamogordo, New Mexico. On July 21st, the bomb was tested and was successful, and Truman was notified. He held back the news until July 25th, when he told the boss that his country had, quote, a new weapon of unusually destructive force. The U.S. president believed that he had sprung a surprise on Stalin, but when the Soviet leader didn't react to the comment, Truman was the one who was surprised. What he didn't know is that Stalin knew even before Truman about the existence of the bomb, because Truman had not been kept up to date on it and wasn't even aware of it until after Roosevelt died. See, Stalin had spies inside the Manhattan Project named Klaus Fuchs, Ted Hall, and David Greenglass. The toll on the Germans after Potsdam was enormous. The Treaty of Versailles, which was, in many historians' opinion, the cause of World War II, was trumped by Potsdam, but with a caveat. The Germans were to be completely neutered, and their country was to be split up into four sections, controlled by the aforementioned British, French, Americans, and Soviets. Berlin and the capital of Austria, Vienna, were pushed back and, rep and they were split up the same way. Germany's borders were shrunk and reparations were set to repay the rest of Europe and Russia for the destruction it caused. Stalin, though, needed a pretext, something to fight the West over as a pretense to his coming actions. He got it from the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Sir Winston Churchill, when he gave his famous Fulton speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, on March 5, 1946. It is also known as the Iron Curtain speech. And here is an excerpt from that speech. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them 
lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and, in some cases, increasing measure of control from Moscow. Athens alone, Greece, with its immortal glories, is free to decide its future at an election under British, American, and French observation. The Russian-dominated Polish government has been encouraged to make enormous and wrongful inroads upon Germany, and mass expulsions of millions of Germans on a scale grievous and undreamed of are now taking place. The communist parties, which were very small in all these eastern states of Europe, have been raised to preeminence and power far beyond their numbers and are seeking everywhere to obtain totalitarian control. Police governments are prevailing in nearly every case, and so far, except in Czechoslovakia, there is no true democracy. Stalin, well, he viewed the speech as a threat to the West, from the West, and that they were planning to declare war against the Soviet Union. It was blatant and open imperialism, even though both Truman and Attlee denounced the speech. The boss now openly broke the treaties of Yalta and Potsdam and installed puppet Communist Party leaders in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Poland, East Germany, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia. In Yugoslavia, though, Marshal Tito was not to play the moldable puppet to Stalin. He tried to make a deal with Bulgaria, as well as annex Albania, without Stalin's approval. The boss was furious and ordered Tito to Moscow. Well, he knew better, and sent some delegates instead to suffer the wrath of Stalin. The Yugoslavian leader was isolated, but not destroyed. In the boss's mind, he'd deal with him later as he did with Trotsky. But by 1949... Stalin had an event that would really cheer him up. China and their leader, Mao Zedong, had taken control of Beijing and quickly thereafter installed a communist government in North Korea, something that exists to this very day. While communism was spreading throughout the world, Stalin believed his own country had grown soft, especially the generals of the Red Army. They spent the war running the show on their own, gathering glory for themselves, and degrading Stalin in conversation. But unfortunately for their lives, an organization known as SMIRSH, the counterintelligence agency in the Red Army, which was supposed to just be looking at possible German spies, began watching the Russian generals. Here is a conversation that was overheard between a hero of the Stalingrad battle Colonel General Gordov and Major General Rybolchenko, his chief of staff, on December 28, 1946. Rybolchenko, the way things are now, you might as well lay down and die. Everybody is fed up with his life. People say so quite openly, on the trains, in the metro, everywhere. They come straight out with it. Gordov. Everything depends on bribery and bootlicking nowadays. I've been passed over twice because I've never gone in for licking boots. Rybolchenko. 
Yes, well, Zhukov's resigned himself to it. He just keeps soldiering on, Gordov. On the face of it, he's soldiering on. But in his heart, he doesn't like it. On December 31st of the same year, Gordov and his wife Tatiana's discussion was recorded. Gordov, why do I have to go to Stalin? Why do I have to beg and demean myself? Crawl to that... Oh, insert your favorite curse words here, folks. Tatiana, I feel sure he won't last more than a year now. Gordov, I can't bear to look at him. I can't breathe the same air, yet you keep urging me to go and see Stalin. It's just like the Inquisition. People are just dying. If you knew the half of it, you think I'm the only one, but I'm not, not by a long shot. Tatiana, at one time people with minds of their own could go underground and do something about it. But now there's nothing you can do. They've broken Zhukov's spirit. Gordov, yeah, well, they'll keep Zhukov for a year or two, and then he's finished. Within a month, Gordov, his wife Tatiana, and Rybolchenko were arrested and shot. Many, many others were arrested and interrogated, many implicating the Grand Marshal, General Georgi Zhukov. But it was too early to arrest the hero of the Great Patriotic War, but a base for a future arrest was carefully laid. The terror had to be cranked up on the people. First, the intelligentsia had to be targeted. They were the really softest group. The famous musical artists Shostakovich and Prokofiev were targeted, but on, not on their direct person, but their friends and family. Prokofiev's wife, Lina, was arrested in February of 1947 and sent to a prison camp. Many other relatives were arrested to put fear into the intelligentsia's hearts. This was 1937 all over again. Instead of relishing in the glory of the victory of the war, the terror was in everyone's mind and led to a truly depressed populace. Lavrentia Beria made sure Stalin knew everything about everyone, which made him a greatly feared and hated man. Khrushchev tried to make some independent decisions in 1951 and had to write the following letter to Stalin to avoid the executioner's bullet. Quote, Dear Comrade Stalin, you have perfectly pointed out the mistakes I have made. I ask you, Comrade Stalin, to help me correct my gross mistake and to minimize the damage done to the party by my erroneous statement. Everyone was now in pins and needles. No one was safe, and they knew it. Not even old stone arse was safe, and Molotov knew it. What they all realized was that Stalin was ready to get rid of all of them to create a new cadre of loyal Stalinists, just as he had done in 1937. Out with the old, and in with the new. Next time, we recount the last days of Stalin, and the planning of an event that would have changed the world had Stalin survived, an event that made all his henchmen's spines tingle in fear. It was a planned event that was only uncovered for a short period during Perestroika in 1991. I'll leave you in suspense for the next week and spring the surprise then. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It is the second to the last on Stalin, 
as I plan on finishing off the monster next episode. So don't forget to go to the Facebook fan page at Russian Rulers History Podcast or our newly constructed website at RussianRulersHistory.com. There you can ask a question, leave a comment, share some interesting ideas about Russian history, or make a suggestion. But now, as always, Das Vidanya i Spasiba Bolshoya.